2 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, in a moment we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. And again, we, uh, we join together to meet in this second inspired letter um, of the Apostle Paul directed to the church that's meeting in the uh, city of Corinth. And we move together now from the subject of Paul's immediate business with the Corinthian church to what I see as a, an opportunistic lesson on the warfare in which the Apostle Paul and all Christians are engaged. And I say opportunistic, a lot of times we use that term negatively, and I don't mean it as negatively, but if you read the Pauline epistles, his letters to the churches, you see he um, capitalizes on opportunities to teach different things um, in the middle of a subject. He'll just jump on a rabbit trail and he'll chase that rabbit down and, and you know, we'll have rabbit stew. Uh, <laughs> I could blame that on Paul, yeah. So I say opportunistic because Paul begins the chapter by speaking of his physical appearance among the Corinthians, but he seizes on the opportunity to explain the contrasting principles of spiritual warfare. And a lot of Paul's deepest doctrinal points are interjected almost as margin notes in his greater thesis. And you don't have to study his letters long to realize this, that some of the greatest things that that the Apostle Paul writes, he writes um, almost as marginal notes, as parenthetical items. And um, we often find therein truths that shape our understanding of this Christian life. And such is the case with this morning's text. So look for these departures from the main as we read through the first 11 verses of this chapter. And I want you to notice how they apply both to the passage in which they are remarked as well as to other areas of our lives. We're going to jump right into the text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 11. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Notice verse 4 in parentheses. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him 
let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. So, let's go ahead and pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to... um, to look into your mind, to let you speak to us. God, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would do just that, would speak through your penman, the Apostle Paul, that um, you would convict us of our sin. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us direction and encouragement to obey you in our lives. We also pray, Lord, that you would help us to vividly see the warfare in which we are engaged and see how we are to fight it that we might glorify you in every aspect of our lives. And then, God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to that place in their heart where the Holy Spirit has revealed to them their need for a Savior, I just pray that uh, they would reach that point today and that that they would uh, submit to, uh, to your leading and accept Christ as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... As I, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's the marginal comment in verse 4 that jumps out in this passage. I mean, perhaps that's because of how it's worded, you know, the speech patterns um, or the subject matter that it implies. But it's also a global statement in a localized text. Just look at verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The parenthetical statement in verse 4 speaks of our warfare. See the, did you see those two words? Our warfare. As if it's something in which we are all involved. I think that is absolutely essential to understanding the rest of the text and also understanding the point that the Apostle is trying to make in this parenthetical statement. That we are at war. And if it's our warfare, then we're involved in the war. It doesn't take, um, the Apostle Paul doesn't take time to explain much about this warfare right away because it's common knowledge. The implication of of that fact is is far-fetching. The implication is this, this fact that we are at war. It implies that there's a war going on of which we are a part. When we see those words, our warfare. Are you all following me on this? You see those words, our warfare, and that, that implies that there's a war going on of which we are a part. Now, if there's a war going on, our initial instinct is and should be to find out what the nature of that war is and prepare to engage in it. 
you realize that's a good instinct. If you find out that you're in a war, you need to figure out what your part in that war is, what the nature of the war is, and engage in the battle. We have that we have this instinct, and it's the right instinct. Because from experience, those who deny a war's existence when there's a war end up dying in that war or tacitly aiding the enemy. You know why we engage in war of any kind? So that we don't end up losing. Right? <laughs> because if you say, if you say, um, okay, fine, I see that there's a war. Um, I'm just not going to participate. That means one of two things. One, you're either going to aid the enemy or you're going to die in that war. Okay? That, that's, that's the reality. It is no different in this warfare of which the Apostle Paul speaks. So we're caught by the wording of verse 4 in which we discover, if we didn't know it before, that there's a war going on of which we are a part. Now what is especially invigorating in verse 4 is that we're given therein the very means by which we are to fight the war. And we're given encouragement that we have on our side weapons that are very powerful towards winning the victory. Now that's encouraging, right? It's one thing to be told, oh hey, you're in a war. This is our warfare. And then to find out well, kind of a, what nature of war is this, right? <laughs> I need to know how I'm supposed to engage. And then you're encouraged with this fact. Oh, by the way, you've got the weapons you need to win. Well, that's a good, that's a good thing to know, right? It's, it's one thing to know that I'm in a war. It's another thing to know I've got all the tools I need to win in this battle. However, verse 4 is, is not the... Um, not the only verse in the passage. And we must view it in its immediate context before making any global implications. So, so let's do that. As a matter of fact, let's study the rest of the passage uh, briefly in light of this truth revealed in verse 4 that we are at war. We see that very clearly mentioned in verse 4 that there's a warfare and it's our warfare. That means we are at war. So um, just keep that in mind as we read other parts of the passage. There's one theme that also carries through this passage, and it's the repeated mention of Paul's appearance. Did you notice that while we were um, reading through the text, how the Apostle Paul kept talking about how he looked? Anyone notice that? I mean, I, I, I find this fascinating. Um, in studying scripture, we often try to learn personal things about the penman. Um, it's, uh, it brings a certain level of interest in that we're all kind of, I wonder what the Apostle Paul looks like. Well, you're going to learn a little something about that um, here today. And in this case, Paul reveals a particular vulnerability of his throughout the text, beginning in verse 1. And in this verse... He speaks of how he delivers the truth with boldness. You see that in verse 1? Um, being absent and bold towards you. Remember what boldness is? That is the primary sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? There's, there's a boldness to preach the gospel. And so he has this boldness um, of which he speaks there in verse 1. Um, 
but he maintains the meekness and gentleness of Christ, which is mentioned also in verse 1. Do you see that as well? It says, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So, we'll, revert, we'll, we'll revisit this verse in a little bit. However, it identifies him, himself, Paul identifies himself in this passage, in verse 1, as one who in presence am base among you. Do you see that? In presence, the Apostle Paul says, I am base among you. You know what base is? Have you ever heard of baser things? Versus finer things. Baser things are things of less uh, attractiveness. You know what the Apostle Paul said in this in verse one. At the very least, he said, "I'm ugly." <laughs> we just learned something about the Apostle Paul. He says, "I have my appearance among you is is base." Huh. Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, it seems he's painfully conscious of his physical appearance among those to whom he ministered. This very much humanizes him to us. But more than that, and more to the reason he brings it up, it reminds those who fight this same war that our victory in this war is not limited by things we cannot change. For Paul, and we'll learn more about this in the next chapter, he would have loved to be able to change his appearance. The Apostle Paul would have loved to be able to change certain things about himself. He would have liked to have had more talent, more poise, better vocals, better sight, more advantages, better looks. All of these things, but he likely had none of these things. Did he pose that as a major issue in the warfare that we fight? He did not. As a matter of fact, he specifically points out in this text and in the next few verses that it's, it, it was not that important. He acknowledges that his appearance is base among the Corinthians. That he is not an attractive person. And he points out in the next few verses, verses 2 and 3, he specifically points out that is not what is most important in my ministry to you. In verse 7, he brings it up again. He asks, do you look on things after the outward appearance? What an important question to ask. Let me ask that question of you. I'm not looking for you to uh, give me a, a, an out loud answer or anything, but just think about it, okay? <laughs> Do you make judgments about people based on things they cannot change? Because that's really what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. I'm not speaking about personal appearance choices, right? See, that, that, that's different. That's things that we can change. How we dress, how we do our hair, how we bathe. These are usually a matter of choice. Among other things over which we have control in our lives. They are usually a matter of choice. Not always, but usually. But whether we have hair at all, or whether our 
You hear that part? You shouldn't judge people who are going bald. <laughs> just kidding. Um, just trying to see if you're listening. Um, <clears throat> their stature or their prettiness, it's not something that we can control. Paul could not change the way he appeared. And so he challenged the Corinthian church to think of fellow brothers and sisters as children of God despite any aspect of their appearance that might put you off. Listen to how he puts this. He says, if any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's. Now, who might do that? Everyone here, hopefully, right? The children of God. You might say, yeah, I'm Christ's, right? Can I get a, can I get a witness? All right, yes. Yeah, so, so I'm Christ's. All right. So then you know this is Jesus. So if any of you consider yourself to be a Christian, that, that's just another way of saying that, right? If any of you consider yourself to be a Christian, let him of himself think this again. In other words, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, think like this. That as he is Christ's, so are we Christ's. Amen. So then <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is saying this. I might not look like much to you. I might not be that impressive. My voice might not be all that good. He actually says that later in the, in the text. My appearance is base. I'm not as good looking as some of you. I might, I might not be all that impressive. He says, but I'd like you to consider this. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, just consider this. I'm a Christian too. We are all Christ's. And you know what the you know what things that I cannot change mean in that equation? Nothing. <laughs> right? What matters is that we are both brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And we have the same value to God. Now, if it's something beyond their control, you are bound to give them all the respect and honor that you would expect as a child of God yourself. In Paul's case, and this is reiterated in verse 8, he was exercising actual apostolic authority. He was ministering in his capacity as an officer of the church. And he was well aware that due to his appearance, people often discounted what he said. Now, it is... Uh, it is uh, it's something here, here that, that, that's clear, is that while we can all agree that it's wrong for Christians to make judgments of people based on things they cannot change, right? Can we all agree with that? Yeah. Can we all just have a vivid moment of honesty? We still do it. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and that's kind of what the apostle Paul was implying. Um, he's encouraging the Corinthian church to not obsess on appearances that cannot be changed and make judgments accordingly. It's important that we grasp this aspect of the Christian life. Our warfare should never take into account physical appearances that cannot be changed or helped. I think that this would apply to physical disabilities and stuff as well. Look, 
Let's not make judgments on people. Let's not allow ourselves, while it may be a natural tendency of the flesh, we must master the flesh with the Spirit and not allow ourselves to think less of people for things that they simply have no control over. And not everything that we see with our natural eyes is pertinent to the spiritual condition of a person. This lack of discernment that is um, of our human nature, but not our spiritual one, was exhibited by the disciples and recorded by John. John chapter 9 and verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, so they're standing before a blind man, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Very righteous question to ask. They felt like they were more righteous, or at least their parents were more righteous, because this fellow was born blind. You recall how Jesus answered that question? He answered that neither this man sinned nor his parents. You see, not everything that we see with our natural eyes is pertinent to the spiritual condition of a person. However, There are genuine aspects to this war of which we should be aware. We fight a different kind of warfare. And the battle rages around us. And I mean to impress upon you and emphasize the importance of this war of which the Apostle Paul speaks specifically in verse 4 and several times else in the passage. That we are in a warfare. The Apostle Paul refers to it as our warfare. And now that we've kind of addressed the context and we've seen the interesting aspects of the Apostle Paul's appearance and and his instruction to us about how that applies in this warfare, don't don't consider people um, to be less spiritual because of things they cannot help, right? All of that said, I want to reemphasize the fact that we are in a battle, that we are in a warfare. Let me give you an example of the spiritual warfare that is raging in this country today. Just this week, in a United States Senate hearing, a very prominent senator demanded of a nominee that he reject the foundation of his Christian faith in order to be considered eligible in his eyes. That's in America. Is that shocking? In America, where we we live in a country built on Christian values, one of which is immortalized in our Constitution that religion must never be a test for eligibility for office. And this senator did not ask for this test to be applied to any other religion, just Christianity. Isn't that amazing? I'm glad he didn't get the nomination. (laughs) The fact is, we are at war. And, and Christianity is under attack in our country. Our faith system is under attack in virtually the last bastion of religious freedom in the world. And given this reality, we should know how to fight this war that we're in. As a, construct, as a, as a construct for the remainder of our study this morning, let's ask this question. How do we fight this war? 
How, how do we fight this war that we're in? We've seen very clearly and we recognize and embrace this truth that we are at war. This is our warfare. It's our battle. So then we have to ask, how do I engage? What kind of a warfare is this? So we're going to ask that question. We're going to get four answers from the text. I've got 20 minutes. That's five minutes per point. This shouldn't be a problem, right? So... I believe that the most important initial question, lest we, uh, that this is the most important initial question, lest, and, unless we fall into the ways of those violent religions whose fundamental theories demand the use of the sword in their propagation. Christianity actually prohibits that. Okay? I also believe it's important to ask this question considering the promise that's given in verse 4. That our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, hey, I need some training in these special weapons and tactics then, right? If they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, I, I, I need to know something about them. If this is the case, then I'd like some training with these powerful weapons. I, I think powerful weapons are exciting. They should be. They're used properly. What it means is that less of our loved ones will have to die in our defense. And that's exciting to me. When, they, when, when powerful weapons mean that the enemy will be defeated more assuredly, they're exciting. This is especially the case given the fact that our enemy is the devil and his demonic horde. Anyone want to inflict some damage on that enemy? Yes. All right. Stick around because that's what this passage is about. We're going to ask how we fight that enemy. If we have been given special powerful weapons and methods for fighting and defeating the devil and his purposes, then we should know somewhat about how we are to fight. For our answer to this question, let's go back to our text beginning in verse 1. And the first answer we find there in verse 1, how do we fight? We fight in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. That is not one that comes naturally, right? Because when we think fight, we think, oh yeah, I know how to fight. The guy that wins is the guy that's the meanest, right? Well, that might work in a street fight, all right? This is a different kind of warfare, and that's why we ask the question. How do we fight? We fight in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. These fruits of the Spirit of God are often forgotten and cast aside by our flesh. Let's take them one at a time. What does the word meekness mean? It, it means power under control. Make no mistake that in, in the truth you have great power. And if you, if you study this book and you study the basis for it and you make it a point to have this book buried in your heart and your mind, you have a very powerful weapon, the truth. And you can beat people up with it brutally. Listen. Listen. That's not, the way, that's not the way we're supposed to do it. 
meekness, power under control. It acknowledges, meekness acknowledges the fact that we have the truth. That our victory is eternally secured, but it does not flaunt that power. It takes the frailty of humanity into account in an argument. It's sensitive towards hurting feelings and resistant to making enemies of the victims of our enemy. Let's never forget who the enemy is here. The enemy is the devil. All those people fighting on his side, they're his victims. Okay? Meekness demands that I take into consideration the person with whom I argue. It reminds me that I'm no better than they are just because I have the truth. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace and all I desire is to share that same grace with other sinners. Meekness is how Jesus came, remember? He reached out to the sinners and loved them and wooed them to his salvation. Now this doesn't mean that that we ever loosen our grip on the truth. It is still truth. We never relent. We never compromise the basis of our faith, no matter who might demand it. Rather, we stand firm in the power of the truth and humbly implore other sinners to embrace it. There's a humility implied in the word meekness that cannot be denied. And Jesus exemplified this for us in his incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, "And Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It is with that same meekness that we must carry forth the gospel to the world. Gentleness is demanded here also in our text and shows as especially fitting for the warfare which we fight. Gentleness must characterize our every word and our every action. You know, um, (laughs) gentleness is not uh, really what you think of as a good war tactic, right? And, 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 And make no mistake, In the wars of this world, the natural physical wars of this world, gentleness is a really bad idea. Okay? (laughs) That's the way you lose wars. But in our warfare, this spiritual warfare, gentleness is the tactic that God has given us and promised us will bear fruit. Meekness and gentleness. Let the lost world rage in the streets and swear and shout and tear things down. That's not the way of Christianity. It's not the method by which we are promised victory. We must simply stand firmly on the foundation of this proven perfect book and kindly attest to its veracity. Sometimes meekness and gentleness will require us to listen while invectives and falsehoods are hurled against us. We don't care about that. They were hurled against our Lord as he carried his cross to Golgotha too. Even as he hung on the cross there, the thieves to his right and to his left insulted and attacked him. 
But one of those thieves was so impacted by the demeanor of our Lord that he repented and was saved on the spot. What if Jesus had not used meekness and gentleness? I think both of those thieves would have gone to hell. But one of them got saved. <coughs> Look, if this is the if this is the ministry we are to have, meekly and gently suffering so that one more might come to Christ, so be it. It's our specified manner of fighting in this warfare. Notice also in verse 1 that boldness is not precluded by meekness and gentleness. Okay? The Apostle Paul in the last part of verse 1 speaks of his boldness. We must never compromise on the truth in our deployment of these powerful means of warring. Meekness and gentleness never gets to compromise the truth. And this brings us to our second point and another answer to our question. How shall we fight this war? The answer is in the spirit, not the flesh. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see, especially in verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In verse 2, Paul acknowledges that some think wrongly of him, that he walks after the flesh, and he kind of hints that he might have to be a little sterner with those folks if he meets them in person. But in verse 3, he makes this powerful statement, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Paul here is acknowledging in the first phrase that he has a body of flesh. How many of you here can identify with that? Good, good. That means not only you are listening, but you are not ghosts. Okay, so <laughs> we, we, we do walk in the flesh, and we acknowledge that. We are all limited by it to some extent. But our warfare is not of the fleshly kind. Rather, we fight spiritual battles. Paul speaks of this at more length in his letter to the church meeting in the city of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we are in that passage encouraged to take up the whole armor of God so that we might stand against the wiles of the devil. These pieces of armor are not physical and they're not carnal. As verse 4 of our text reiterates, they are spiritual. Beloved, never forget that the best thing you can do to make yourself invulnerable to the attacks from the devil is developing yourself spiritually in the presence of God. You provide zero protection against the wiles of the devil by religious imagery. You follow me? Physical things are physical things. They are carnal. Carnal means based in the physical. Our warfare is not physical. Our warfare is spiritual. 
We've got to remember this lest we fall into the trap that ha- that churches in the past have fallen into in which they surround themselves with Christian-like images. And maybe to our flesh that provides a certain amount of ah, comfort being surrounded by these images. But let me tell you, it provides zero spiritual protection. That's so important that we grasp this. Because if I'm dependent on an object for any kind of spiritual protection, I have replaced God with something much lesser. Do you know what I need? I need to depend on God in my life. Learn to be sensitive to His leading. Read what he, what he has preserved for me of his own mind so that I might understand how I am to change my life. Might there at times be in my life certain imagery that reminds me of who I am? Absolutely. You want to wear a cross around your neck? Go for it. Whatever. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> All right? If it's a reminder or a testimony... You know, that's what it's for. But let's not ever trust in anything physical to provide spiritual protection. So as we look at how we are to um, how we are to fight in this war, we must fight in the spirit and not the flesh. These pieces of armor of which Paul speaks in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, are spiritual pieces. Beloved, never forget that the best thing you can do is make yourself invulnerable to the attacks from the devil uh, by developing yourself spiritually in the presence of God. You need not focus so much on the location of the enemy if you are yourself defensible. Take up that helmet of God's eternal salvation. Put on that breastplate of righteous living. Gird yourself with the truth of this book. Prepare your feet with study in in the presentation and the character of the gospel. And take up the shield of trusting in God above all, for therewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. How much time do you spend every day in the Word of God, the sword that He's put in the hand of every Christian soldier? Do you focus on the on personal spiritual growth? How much so? If you feed the spirit more than the flesh and see if that doesn't drastically impact the warfare in which you are involved. Verse 5 gives us the third step that we must follow. And the third answer to the question, how do we fight in this warfare? How we fight? We fight in full subjection to the mind of Christ. Full subjection of the mind to Christ. I keep reading that sentence wrong. I've been reading it wrong for two days now. And I wrote it. So, (laughs) in full subjection of the mind to Christ. Look at verse 5. Casting down imaginations 
and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. You know what an imagination is? It's an idea. That's the nature of this warfare. It is a warfare of ideas. And and ideas that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, in other words, ideas that are contradicted by this book, those need to be cast down. There's a picture painted here of a medieval battlefield in which high places, advantages that the enemy used to hold, um, are broken up and torn down. Um, I don't play a lot of video games, but there's one that, um, if I had more time, I would play, and it's uh, it's Age of Empires. I know, and everyone who plays video games laughs at me. Because you're, you like build this little kingdom and you make little towers and guys on horses with arrows and stuff like that and you defend your kingdom. And here's, but here's what happens to me, right? I get all obsessed with building my little kingdom and my village and my farms and, and, and my little walls and everything. And then, and then I'll, uh, I'll scroll over to look at a different part um, uh, of the map and... Within the borders of my kingdom, somebody has built a tower. (laughs) And the next thing you know, I'm at war. You know what we need to do in this warfare? Is make sure that the devil doesn't build any towers inside our borders. Back in, in, uh, that's the nature of warfare in in old times. Towers were built in strategic places by the enemy. These towers gave the enemy a clear line of sight and a defensible position within the borders of the kingdom. And that's the picture that's painted of certain areas of your mind. The devil seeks to place lies in your mind. They will be the lies that are told by the society in which you live. They are defensible positions where the devil can monitor your goings on. He means to eventually convince you of more things that are untrue so that he might build even more defensible space in your mind. These are things that sound good to our ears. But they are in contradiction to Scripture. These are concepts with which the world is more comfortable, but they go against the gospel. These towers are being built every day in the minds of Christians, and the devil is setting up defensible space in our mind. He does this through peer pressure, and political pressure, and societal pressure. All of these come together to cause us to surrender certain truths of Scripture. But when we surrender the truth, Satan builds a tower. And then he defends that tower and he wreaks havoc in our lives. Look how we are to fight against this strategy of the devil. Verse 5 shows we are to cast down these towers, these high places. We are to submit our minds to Christ. Every corner of this space belongs to the king of kings. There is no room for strong, the strongholds of Satan in this cranium. This cranium belongs to God. I don't get to entertain lustful thoughts. 
They don't belong here. There's going to be no tower of lustful thoughts built in this mind. I don't get to allow opposing ideas to take root here. I don't give in to the pressures of a society that is not tolerant of Christ. They don't get to build things in my mind. This is part of his kingdom. This mind was bought and paid for. It belongs to the king and I'll tear down every stronghold that I find in his kingdom. Look finally to this last point in verse 6. How do we fight? We fight in readiness to reprise disobedience. Just look at verse 6. This is our last one. And having in readiness, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I find this interesting because here the Apostle Paul acknowledges that there is obedience. Right? And when you're in obedience and you've taken a survey of the kingdom and you say, yeah, I have, I've got it. The kingdom has been cleared. Time to take a nap. Right? It's not how it works, is it? No. It's time for another tour. It's time to build up. It's time to build up the spiritual armies, if you will, in our life. It's time to build up strength. And if any disobedience creeps into my life, it's going to get squished like a bug. We need to attack it with a vengeance. Once we've rid our minds of the strongholds that Satan has attempted to set up there, we can begin to set up our own defenses. We know that we tend naturally towards disobedience and we will sometimes fail in our commitment to our king. However, we're watching. We watch our own lives for anything to pop up that might be in opposition to the rule of Christ. We are ready to revenge or to reprise disobedience in our own lives. Paul speaks as he does in verse 6 as an apostle of the church showing us the priority that this means of warfare must take. And in the absence of apostles, we must guard our own hearts and our own lives and be ready to attack any area of our life that gets out of line with the rule of Christ. There must be within us a burning desire to never give back the ground we've gained in our battle against the wicked one. As an illustration of this, find a person who has successfully departed from a life of drugs or alcohol. And I mean successfully. What do you see consistent in their lives? They are unwilling to put themselves in a compromising situation. You know what that is? That is a readiness to reprise disobedience. It ain't happening here, they say. I've already seen the damage that can cause. They won't sit in a room with drugs or alcohol and they won't hang around it. They will vengefully guard their preciously bought freedom because they have seen what disobedience leads to. And they're ready to attack it with everything they've got the moment one little piece of it shows up. See, that's the secret. Be ready to stamp out every smoldering little ember of the wicked one in your life. 
That's how we fight. It's not a normal warfare. There are some aspects of this warfare that are applicable through all kinds of warfare, but this one's different. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against the devil. And he doesn't rest. He can't stand you. You know why he can't stand you? Because God loves you. And God intends to be glorified by your life. And that Satan will prohibit with every last breath he takes. So then we must be on guard. We must be ready to fight this fight. And this is how we do it. In meekness and gentleness of Christ. In the spirit, not the flesh. In full subjection of our minds to Christ. In readiness to reprise disobedience. Look, if you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior... I would challenge you to come forward as we sing this invitation hymn in which we make this commitment that we surrender all to Christ. Go ahead and stand and sing this with me together. Look, if you're a child of God, just make this decision right here and now with me that we're going to engage in this battle. We're not going to pretend like the battle's not going on. We're not going to pretend like there's not a war. We are not going to be victims. We're going to be victors. In order to do this, we must surrender all to him. On that first stanza, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the victory that you've promised.